Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 256 for January 25th, 2023. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about the 2023 SHAs and what Andrew should teach in his CRM classes. So get ready to dial up Rate My Professor because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Doug in Scotland. Hey, everyone. Heather in soaking wet California. Oh, my goodness. Hi, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew in even wetter California. What's up? (laughs) And Bill finally back in California. Yes, I'm back to build the ark so I can survive. That's right. That's right. And I'm here in uh, Lake Havasu City, Arizona. I can literally see California from my back door. That's not true, but I kind of can. I think some of you see the London Bridge. Not from here, but yes, oh. we've been on it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. We actually, on the on the archaeology show that uh, Rachel and I do, we might, uh, w- while we're here, we're actually thinking about doing an episode on the London Bridge because there's a, it's a fascinating history with the whole bridge and then how this version of the bridge actually got to Arizona. It's crazy. So I've done some reading yeah. on it last time we were here a year ago, but it's pretty cool. It's pretty much the main reason to go to Lake Havasu, though, it seems like. It kind of is, right? Yeah, it kind of is. Well, we're here for an RVing event that takes place here every year about this time. It's about 500 rigs that we're surrounded by and events all day long. So, And because of that, I may dip out of this podcast a little bit early if it goes a little long, just because I've got a Bloody Mary competition to get to that I'm going to slay. So it's going to be amazing. My wife and I, are gonna, <laughs> we're just going to kill it. So anyway, so... On this episode, we're going to spend some time, as we mentioned in the intro, talking a little bit about the SHAs because Bill just went there and that's the Society for Historical Archaeology meetings. They were in Portugal this year. And so he's going to talk about that. And then for the rest of the episode and possibly even a bonus segment, we will talk about what Andrew should be teaching in his CRM classes because we all know that nobody's doing it right, including Andrew, as much as he likes to think he is. So we'll tell I'm him what's up you, and how to do it. I'm just yeah. using you. Yeah. I'm using you. <laughs> indeed. You. Indeed. All right. So, Bill, give us the highlights. What uh, what went well first? <laughs> yeah, maybe, sure. Maybe I mean, we can talk uh, about what didn't. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, the, well, talk about what didn't. I don't know. It seemed like it was it went off as well as an SHA could possibly go. You know, it was in the Nova University of Lisbon. So it was mm-hmm. in, you know, central Lisbon, which is an amazing city. And I, th- I think that it was probably organized by the folks who work at the university. So it was in their social sciences area. There's several different buildings. So the, 
the rooms weren't all in one you know building like we're used to if it's at a conference hotel and i think maybe that was one of the things that made it really complicated because it was in kind of an anthropology department archaeology department area so there were several different buildings that that means that there's more than one pathway to go to each room so there's never this one hallway or this one space where you'll see all the people and so i feel like it was great i saw some great presentations i actually did a session that had technical difficulties, just like the last time I tried to do a talk at an international SHA, the computer, like Microsoft Word is not super easy to move from, you know, English to other language, languages, even, you know, versions of English in other countries. It's not always the same. And so there was some complications there, but I, we overcame them and, you know, I finished my whole session. There were some really great presentations I think that, you know, this one, like all the other international ones, it was well attended. However, you'd never know because it was like in Lisbon, right? So everyone wanted to go to the town and they wanted to see the amazing <laughs> sites and eat the delicious food yeah. and hang out and go to the great places. And there was a lot less of the, you know, you know, hey, everybody, let's let's hang out together because it's snowing outside and we're in, you know, Quebec, Canada or, you know, welcome to Boston where it's raining outside. And when it's not, it's seven degrees. Let's all stay inside the, the building for warmth just so that we can survive and then also talk about archaeology. So I think that well, do you remember? You know, do you remember the essays in in, in Waikiki? <laughs> like no, nobody I, was in any no. sessions at all. I know. I, I wanted to go to that one. I did. I wanted to go to that one badly, but um, you know, I couldn't arrange it because I went to the SHA and I was working for a, a company, uh, and they're like, "Wow, we already paid for you to go to a conference." Yeah, but yeah. this is why yeah. I think that the SCAs are brilliant to repeat attendance at Visalia and I sorry for anybody who lives in Visalia but <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it was that bad but I mean I was just at the conference no, thing so I don't there's know there's nothing wrong with Visalia but there's not a whole lot to look at so you're actually going to the conference mm -hmm. yeah. yeah well you can go yeah, I mean actually my my first time going to Visalia for that conference I think I blew off a day and went over to uh what Sequoia National Park in Kings Canyon yeah. it's like just about an hour yeah, away so I mean I uh, guess if you drive yeah. I'm talking about like more in the area but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so like yeah. it's it's the biggest the you know the the biggest shortfall was that it was in such an awesome place and yeah. so everybody everybody was hanging out you know if you were if you were trying to network for jobs because your phd or whatever trying to be on the job market this was a horrible place to go because everybody just evaporated you know you'd give your talk or you'd see the things that you wanted to see and then you would just like fade away and then no one would see anything. And if you were part of the WhatsApp groups, you'd see that everybody's at this restaurant or, you know, nine or 10 people are at this bar or, you know, folks mm. made it home safely. Like it was pretty cool because you can see that a lot of folks were getting together and they were doing a lot of, you know, networking stuff, but it wasn't anywhere near the actual venue. And, you know, folks were having a good time, but it wasn't with, you know, everyone else. So if you didn't know a group of folks, then I, I don't know, I guess you were just sightseeing or you're all alone. And this is like one of the things that they always talk about at the conferences that if folks don't know anyone there, then they're always like trying to, they're on the outside trying to get in and what are methods that mm -hmm. we can get folks in. And it, that's always complicated because we all want to see our friends and we want to go hang out. And the only way that you can make it a space that people can be you know inclusive as if they're all trapped in the same hallway together or the same book there was no book room at this one too which was not you know good that's or, one or less if they, place 
<clears throat> they create a space for that. Yeah. Um, I think the SCAs do a good job of that. Where, and they've just added a new, I just got an email recently talking about a, a new opportunity to network. You have to create that space or it's not going to happen. Yeah. And the yeah. other thing that I really, you know, we've talked about this before, drinking at the conferences. But yeah. if there's movements to get rid of that or to diminish it, everyone just goes away. So when they ha had receptions, there was like, I, th I don't even know. I, I showed up late to the opening reception, like 35 minutes, and all of the alcohol mm. was consumed. And so everybody was like, we're out of here. And it wasn't even, <laughs> you know, it wasn't even as if the, the it wasn't even as if the venue had used all of the alcohol it had available to itself. It was just that they had given out several cups of wine and then just decided that like, okay, that's enough for these people. They've had enough. And you know, Jeez. each archeologist basically drinks their own bottle. So it's kind of like, you know, crazy, especially with this group. I mean, seriously, people just started to fade away. And then the people who were left there were disgruntled. They were networking, but they were like, wow, heck there's nothing to do here to forget this entire delicious buffet of food. You know, there's no wine. So we're out of here. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, you know, it, that's, that's a huge thing because we've talked about it before, you know, our drinking patterns at conferences are unhealthy to say the least <laughs> as far as archaeologists. But if you actually eliminate that aspect, then the archaeologists like don't socialize. They'll just go somewhere else where there's drinks and then, yeah. and then you don't have any, any networking opportunity. Yeah. I think, I think one, one way of working on that is to, or addressing that is to have separate spaces for that. So, you know, having an, uh, you know, a, the, the drinking portion in the evening, but definitely having, I mean, I know obviously networking happens during those kind of drinking events, although I don't know how many people remember <laughs> the networking that happened, but having a separate space for specific networking, I think is helpful. Yes, a lot of things happen just informally, but when you have a formal space for it, you know that the people that are in that space on both sides, the hirers and the hirees, um, are there because that's what they want. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, don't, I don't know if know. that, I don't mean to cut you off, Heather, but I don't yeah. know if that's going to work. Like what I just saw this last time pretty much solidified that I don't think that's going to work because no one will ever go to the non alcohol space. But and if that, it's in that's the middle like of the, the day, even if it's in the middle of the day where, like, if you really want a job, why wouldn't you? <laughs> and yeah. if you really need to hire people, I'll tell you from someone who is trying to hire and is desperate to find the right person. Yeah. I'm absolutely motivated to go. And I think it's better if you do it in the morning, maybe a coffee thing, or you do it in the midday, but you stay away from the evening. I yeah. totally agree with you on that. But I think even a morning coffee chat would be a good idea. That's what I feel like having snacks and saying there's going to be coffee and breakfast. I think you can reel in people before papers, yes. especially at the SHA where the papers start at like nine. So you have yep. that time beforehand at the other ones where it starts at seven. I don't really know if breakfast is going to be a thing because the only one who's awake at seven at a conference are the people who have to talk at seven fifteen. <laughs> Definitely not those that are watching it at seven fifteen. I sort of agree with Bill on that it'll be tough, but I also sort of think that you could probably so slightly disagree in that you could probably actually do non-alcoholic social events. I, I know Heather was just talking about like, you know, morning coffee or something like that. But also if you were to somewhat do it 
where there's not an either or in that yeah. the, the problem with like the alcoholic events is the people who don't drink, which is actually quite a few archaeologists, like it doesn't seem like it, but you know, roughly about a third of, of people at the conferences are not going to drink. And that might be religious reasons. They might be recovering alcoholics. They, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons. They may be might professionals. Be breastfeeding. <laughs> well, okay, Chris, let's not, let's not take it that far. Right? Let's, not, let's not go that far. You, that's a lot. It's pushing the limit there, uh, Chris. But yeah, in a sense of like most of those people would have already, when there's alcohol, decide they're not going to go. And so when the alcohol leaves, so do everyone who wants the alcohol. So I think you you could probably get it. And it may be smaller but there is definitely, I mean, we did the stats. There's a definitely a significant number of archaeologists. It just doesn't seem like it because when you go to a drinks reception, lo and behold, everyone's drinking at a drinks reception. But there's actually going to be yeah. quite a few people who are going to skip that. And they're going to skip it if there's any alcohol anyways, just for the awkwardness yeah. or, you know, uh, they don't want to be hit on, They religious reasons. I mean, there's we could probably spend like 20 minutes listing every reason why people don't drink. And I think... Yeah, you're, you're probably, I think it's doable. You just have to like not do it as a either or sort of event. I yeah. think you have to sort of commit to, yeah, I don't know, morning coffee. And I guess, so it's been a long time since I've done to like a North American conference, but like all the European ones do like a break at like 1030 or 1130 for like half an hour for like coffee or tea, depending Whoa. on what country you're in. I mean, you could probably extend that like, just push push the times apart, do a full hour, and you can have some really interesting events, I think, in the cool. morning at a, a recently decent time where most people will be there anyways. Yeah. Um, but again, I'm going off of like European time where like also 1030 is a bit late for some countries. So, well, sorry, yeah. a bit early, well, a bit early. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, it's tough, but I think it's doable. Yeah, and stuff in Portugal goes later. <laughs> I mean, crazy later. Like, I was ready to go to sleep, and I'm out of there, and it's like, oh, it's time for dinner. You know, and you're shaking your head yeah. like, wow, you're going to eat dinner at 9 o'clock? Then what are we going to do, stay up till 3? Because <laughs> I wouldn't just eat and then go to sleep. I don't know. It was it was cultural, for sure, you know, folks staying up yeah. later. But, uh, well, you know, Bill, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, in the last few minutes of this segment, because we want to move on to Andrew's topic in segment two, but, you know, you've been part of some of the administration of the SHA, and mm -hmm. I don't want you to throw anybody under the bus or anything like yeah. that, but, you know, from whatever you're comfortable saying, but, you know, we've talked for a long time about how conferences really need to step up, change, modify what they're doing. Did anything yeah. happen as a result of the, some of the committee meetings and things like that that you're part of at this conference? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great question. So you're you're exactly right. The, the SHA is just like all the other conference organizations trying to, you know, figure its new direction after the COVID pandemic. So, you know, mm -hmm. they went virtual and then they had another one after that where there was still a lot of, you know, not really lockdowns, but people were still wary of COVID. And, you know, there was a whole complication there with that. I don't think the organization has necessarily moved into kind of a hybrid space where, you know, they're, they're going to have papers online, but they did have one really well attended great session of folks who recorded videos that, that, that you know, I didn't think it was going to work, but they recorded their videos and then they were all shown in one room there. I, I don't understand why this was the way it was, but that's what they decided they were going to do. But yeah. for folks who had registered for the conference, they could see those videos as well. And I went by the room and I couldn't even get in. 
Like it was, everybody knew they were just going to be videos played, but the room was packed and there was people out in the hallway, you know, to see the videos. It was totally awesome. Like everybody showed up for that session and they really wanted to watch them all. And so that was, you know, really encouraging for me, you know, trying to get folks to go into the hybrid direction. We've talked about all the complications for that, but, you know, I think that they'll have some hybrid sessions at the 2024 one in uh, Oakland. The other thing too, that like there was a anti-racism audit or like an internal audit of the entire organization. And I don't want to get into a lot of details, but one of the things that came out was some kind of protocols for folks to report harassment. And so following the Southeastern Archaeology Conference, how they had their thing set up really quickly before the conference, there was this lanyard system where folks who were part of the uh, board of directors said that we would, you know, be report people, contact people to forward any, uh, you know, complaints or any concerns Hmm. on through the channels. And and we could be identified by different colored lanyards, which I think was really cool. And I think that, you know, that's just a direction. That's a really great way to go because you have some people who have agreed to actually go through the entire uh, series of steps to report harassment and you can identify them right away that I, I felt like that was a good development. And then, you know, just pulling off an international conference across languages and all that stuff. It was, it had to have been a really difficult challenge, uh, but they did it. Mm-hmm. And as far as like, I don't know if you can fix anything as far as the destination being cool. Like people aren't going to go to session. It doesn't matter where it's at. Like you said, Waikiki doesn't matter if it's in a great place. You're always going to have that problem. But I do feel like they did as good as they possibly could for this one. And it was it was well attended. And I listened to the beginning of last episode and I wasn't the only black person there anymore. I've been going to the SHA <laughs> since like 2003 and the Society yeah. of Black Archaeologists is growing. There was That's probably awesome. 30 or so folks in there. There was a lot of students, there's scholarships. You know, there was a lot of people of African descent that are European that were in the room. And so, no, I wasn't all alone. And it does really change, you know, the way you feel about the organization when you look and see people who look like you. And then, you know, you can talk and and several folks were able to talk through a lot of things that had happened to them through their career and through their dissertation. It was, you know, a really great space. And a lot of the positive stuff that I saw happening was coming from, you know, folks at the SBA having dinners together, going out together, making sure students have what they need and trying to make sure that, you know, folks are actually included. It was it was really cool to see. You're still a tree, though, regardless of ethnicity. You're easy to yeah, pick they're out. Not, I mean, they, <laughs> you got to eat a lot of vitamins to get this tall. <laughs> nice, nice. We're about done with this segment. Doug, did you have a quick comment? Uh, it was actually a question. So, like, yeah. the only SHA I've, I've been to was uh, Seattle. And so, like, since then, my wife's always asked, whenever I ever mentioned conferences, and she's like, is it the SHA? Because, so, I don't know, maybe I, I missed it, but, she, like, SHA Seattle was pretty diverse in that, like, my wife was able to talk with, like, fellow black people for, yeah. like, most of the conference. Mm-hmm. And so, she was always like, oh, yeah, you know, is, was that an outlier? No, um, it's, in terms it's of, even more. Like, the way you just, is it more now? Yeah. It's awesome. Exactly. All right. (laughs) 
Well, it sounds like we're, you know, as a as a field making headway, which is really great. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is, and, and Bill, maybe this is a whole other podcast. And I think we've had the some people, uh, some of your friends, actually, from the Society for Black Archaeologists on the show before. But it sounds like I think we need to do it again because it doesn't sound like the conference organizations themselves are the ones making this headway. It's the people doing no. the hard work, making the Society for Black Archaeologists and, and other similar ones enforcing themselves in and they shouldn't really mm-hmm. have to do that but the good thing is they are doing that and they're making a change so yeah anything uh, good with any of these professional organization is coming from volunteers in the yeah in the committees if you see anything happen. decent at any archaeology organization it is not coming from the board it is coming right. from the committees that's good to know for people who want to see a change they're like just waiting around twiddling their thumbs it's not going to happen. <laughs> you got to make it happen. So, all right. Well, speaking of making it happen, we could talk about this forever and maybe we will do a whole other session on, on SHAs and, and, you know, maybe do some other things. But for now, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and tell Andrew how to teach all of his classes next semester. Back in a minute. All right. Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 256. And we were talking about the SHA meetings and we're going to take a hard left with section two and talk a little about a CRM class. Now, there's a method to my madness here as to why I wanted everyone here to talk about this. And this is great. We kind of have our full contingent. I'm going to teach a CRM professionalism class this semester. So remember, as we go through this, it is not a field school. So this isn't where we're teaching students how to dig and how to map and how to do things in the lab. This is like the upper end stuff. This to me is the black arts of CRM archaeology. It's the stuff that a lot of times <laughs> we don't learn in college, you know. So as I go through this segment and the rest of this show, I just want the co-hosts to think about stuff they wish they knew when they got out of college. You know, the upper end stuff. Right. The stuff that that you're like, man, I wish that the university taught me this, but they didn't. And here I am on my CRM job and I don't know this. I don't know what they're saying. And also, what skills did you need when you moved up? You know, like, okay, I've been a dig bum for a while. What were the things you needed to get above that pay grade? So anyway, I just like to open it up to the audience, to the the cast and uh, go from there. What do you guys think? What do you got? You know, there's everybody always says, oh, writing more theory, you know, learn more about the section 106, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. That's all true. Right. But I tell you what, some of the things that that have really annoyed me with how people run crews and, and it helps to understand these things if you're going to start out being part of a crew, of course, but it's logistics. CRM is all about logistics, right? You might talk about different sites and different things, but if you don't know how to mobilize a crew, get out there, efficiently use that crew and then demobilize a crew. You're, you're just wasting money and none of the theory or papers you're going to write are even going to matter after that because you've already gone a hundred thousand dollars over budget because you suck. Right. So, you know, when we were doing, um, we had for, uh, 35,000 acres to survey at China Lake Naval Weapons Center in about six months with eight people. And we had these little chunks and sections that we would line out. And and some of that was dictated for us, but we would try to decide, okay, you know, what, what are these parcels going to look like? 
And the way that I always try to do survey, and I wish people taught this, and, and there's a lot more to logistics, but I, I specifically want to talk about survey methods right now. I would always, you know, park the truck if you can, obviously, at the beginning, uh, the beginning and end of your survey for the day. Okay, you should have a rough idea of how much you're able to accomplish in a day, given what you're going to find, and with contingencies for we found too much and we need to shorten this up a little bit. But generally, how I I like to operate is. Obviously, find a road that's at the border of your survey boundary. That's the best thing. So you can park along that as you go along through the week. But mm-hmm. if you can't, just park as close as you can to, to where your nearest point is. And then I would run a transect out, usually. Uh, and that transect would be going like a, like a, I call it like a buffer transect. It would be transect running out, like, let's say, east-west, okay? And then you start doing transects north-south, and you're, and you're, you're not including that buffer that you walked east-west. Um, you're doing the east-west buffer. You leave that and then you start walking north south. And if you planned it right, then your last south transect is ending at the truck, right? You're not dead walking right. is the is the thing that I don't think people realize how much money that costs companies, especially over the long term period of a long, big survey. You could waste, I mean, easily ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in dead walking. When you look at the billable rates for field techs and how much you're doing over a longer project, the longer the project is, the more survey there is to do, the more dead walking you do the more you're just wasting time. And it's things like that, things like people not knowing how to change a tire properly or where all the tire changing equipment is. You've got, you know, a caravan of two or three trucks out there and one of them blows a tire. So everybody has to wait and nobody knows how to change it. And nobody knows where the stuff yeah. is. So you've got people sitting there for 30 minutes to 45 minutes at a billable rate of a hundred to $200 an hour, just sitting there while somebody changes a tire. <laughs> it's stupid. <Yeah. laughs> so, <laughs> This is the exact stuff I was hoping for. What's so funny is one of the things I'm going to have my students do, I already had this on my list, was we're all going to meet in the parking lot one day and everyone has to jack up their own car and undo (laughs) one of their lug nuts, put it back on and then put their car back down. Um, There might be some liability there if they screw that up. (laughs) Well, you know, I live on the edge. Um, (laughs) Excellent. Okay, yeah. Anybody else who'd like to go next? I see hands all over the place. We got one going. Heather? I'll jump in. Doug? Doug, go for it, Doug. Yeah. All right. So, actually, I got a question for you, Andrew, and maybe a suggestion based on it, and then a comment. Are you going to use a textbook for it? Yes. um, I'll be using uh, Thomas King's uh, Archaeology Laws and Practice. Okay. I would, if I'm going to do a plug, and I'm pretty sure we've had them. This is before your time, Andrew, on Mm -hmm. the podcast, but. The Anthropology Anthropology Graduates Guide from Student to a Career mm-hmm. by Carol Alec and Joe Watkins. So, all right, conflict okay. of interest. I was in the course that book is based off of, but it was literally the course is called like Avenues Professionalism. And we're talking like 15 years ago now, maybe a bit yeah. more, but it was literally what you've described. It was a course about how to become a professional. Yeah. And so we did things like, you know, mock interviews, how to do, how to search for jobs, actually. Mm-hmm. Like stuff like that. How to build a career, what you're looking for a career, how to gain skills, you know, how to do a CV, cover letter. It was, it was all that sort of more practical stuff. And I think they should be having a second edition coming out fairly soon it may not be there in time for your course but that's okay because the old one the book the old book is like over 10 years old so that's i think right, some though. of the stuff it, is yeah what, but what like it's, it's, it's a book it is the anthropology graduates guide for student okay. from student to career to a career 
Okay, got it. Yeah, this is exactly the kind of stuff that I'm curious about. So, yeah, that's that's excellent, man. I'll definitely look that up. And, and also, can, I, uh, can I throw yeah. in another one? Yes. Also, Bill's book. I was just going Bill's there. Book, Damn, like, you got the Bill credit. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Resume yeah. writing. Yeah. 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 Um, like it's that I stuff. Have, yeah. I have already downloaded from Amazon the fine uh, suite of books by Bill White. And uh, <laughs> they are going to be on the syllabus as well. So cool. Right on. We'll, yes. we'll put all those references in the show notes too. Yes. Yes. Let's do that. And so, if, yeah. So that was just my, and if I could do a quick suggestion as well of like topics is I know Chris, Chris was doing this in the background as a joke, but honestly, so you guys didn't hear this. <laughs> Because we didn't record it, but Chris had suggested I'd I'd uh, tell Andrew to take all of his uh, students to a conference. Yeah. I agree, I 100% <laughs> agree. Like, if there's something that you should learn to do when you're an undergraduate, is actually go to a conference and go mm-hmm. to a conference when it's not like us. Andrew. What what years are the students? You're this is community college, so yeah, they're, they're all they they're pretty much be like you know sophomores kind of thing. Yeah, so they. Likely would, I mean, some of them could go straight into after with associates, but likely get into maybe mm-hmm. another year or two. That's yeah. probably actually like the perfect time to go because you do not want to go to a conference when you're like depending on it for a job. Yeah. Like, like there's a lot of pressure there and you should actually, I don't know if you can, Andrew, but like take them to a conference, but like take them as a group because I've, I've done... Yeah a lot of taking like students to conferences and like we're all used to it, but the first conference they go to, they're not going to know a single thing. They're not going to know any etiquette. They're not going to like, to be honest, they're, you're going to get like silly questions. Like, so is there a bathroom break? Yes. But like, it, it, it's just because it's nothing they've ever done before. And you should definitely like, if you can somehow find some conference that's occurring in the next three months, somewhere in California, if you yeah. could take a, a field trip and bust them out, it'd be huge. If you could actually like be there and then be as a guide and explain to people and actually introduce people as well. Like, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like, okay, sorry to go back to our other uh, past segment, but like, that's okay. Conferences, if they could really help, would actually, if they had like a buddy system for new people mm-hmm. where you could take people around and explain like, all right, so we're going to sit through like a couple hours of questions and then you could point out like, okay, so you see that question right there, that one that didn't really sound like a question. And when they're like, this is more of a comment than a question. And you could, you could explain like that, that that's just basically people, you know, being dicks. Um, right. and to be prepared for that and understand that like it's more than a comment than a yeah <laughs> but like yeah. but it's all these so little true. things that you you pick out but when you first go to a conference and imagine like if you're first presenting and someone stands up and says this is more of a comment than a question like if you've never experienced with that before you're gonna like that's gonna ruin your conference experience so it's right it's all those little tiny things it'd be great if you could just like <laughs> drop them, take them to a conference, explain all the things, explain that like during coffee and lunch break, this is when people socialize and and maybe introduce them to people. Cause yeah, like the biggest thing is until you've built that network up where you can actually meet and talk to people, it's really nerve wracking to. Yeah. And and um, it can be really lonely. Yeah. I I know what you mean. I have, luckily enough, I have done aspects of that because we have little like data sharing meetings, like the S the society for California archeology span has little data sharing meetings that are often within like striking distance of where we are. Like, Ooh, maybe it's only an hour away, hour and a half. It's on a Saturday. 
So uh, I, I have done some of that. That's a great one. So Heather, I see that you have, uh, you got one going. What's up? <laughs> I would say for both being successful and uh, alleviating some frustration, spending a good, I, I would say an entire lecture on the business of archaeology, yeah. what is overhead, what is, what is the actual profit margin, because I think students would be surprised. Unfortunately, because they're not being taught this in university, they're basically just taking these armchair <laughs> remarks on forums as gospel, and it's not true. You know, this concept that the companies pocket a huge profit and on the backs of people that are working in the field, some, you know, there are obviously there are some, you know, abusive companies out there, but I think being able to explain the actual numbers, like not just saying what I just said, but actually proving to them what is the overhead, getting out a pie chart, looking at all the costs of a company? What's the difference between a large company and a small company? Why are billing rates? What are billing rates? What what does a billing rate represent? Why are the billing rates so much higher than what you're being paid? <laughs> All of yeah. this is really, really important, number one, to moving forward. That's one thing that I see. I see it on the forums. I watch them a lot. There's so many times that I want to step in and say something, but I really, truly, honestly do not think that people want to hear it. They just want to complain. And so yeah. I think that if we start from the the classroom, and we start explaining to, to them what the business of CRM is, People will be a lot less frustrated because when you come in and you are, a, you know, you're a newly minted student and you're coming into the business. And if you have this attitude that the big man's trying to screw me every single time, yeah, you're not going to have the attitude that I'm going to want to push forward. Like you're going to be Heather, an as needed for the rest of your career. Yeah. Do you re- yeah, remember when we were, stuff. when I... Remember when I came out to visit you and we were sitting in Malibu in our Lamborghinis talking about this? These people are crazy. I know. Yeah, it's just okay. ridiculous. That's true. I, I, yeah. As I sit on my yacht. In the yeah. of right. Right. <laughs> but no, I'm, I am. Listen, I mean, I, you know what? I, I'll be real. I, I do well for myself. Right. In this. You've business. earned it, though. Yeah. But I've worked, I've worked really, really hard for it. It also had. You know, there was some institutional, like just business knowledge, because this is not my first career. But I'm, I'm, you know what, I'm going to come out and I'm just going to be like blatantly honest, even with, although I do well, I live in a very expensive area and I live mm-hmm. in a nice prefab home. I don't live in a big, huge house. Like people, yeah. these concepts that people think that, you know, executives or that managers and CRM are making a ton of money. That's not true. It's not true. And it actually, yeah. it just comes with a whole host of problems. But back to the, the point is, I think that number one, it would help people be able to kind of get their mind on the right track so that if they do, if they are interested in management, that they're already one step further. And then second, even if you're just a guy that wants to be, or gal that wants to be a field person, it will be a lot less frustrating if you understand. Yeah. Oh, great. Let's see. And so yes, well, we're, I just want to make a comment too. And I see Doug's hand up wants to make a comment mm-hmm. as well, but real quick, 
just keep in mind that we're at 10 years of doing this podcast in February. Okay. February of 2023. And when we started 10 years ago, neither Doug nor Bill had a PhD. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, uh, I don't know about Doug, but I'm pretty sure Bill didn't even have his master's yet. I can't remember. It, maybe you did, Bill, but. No, um, I did. I did. Did you? Okay. Yeah. But you, neither yeah. of you had your PhD and both of you had way fewer children as well. So, <laughs> but everybody, I if you done. stick with I this. Done. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, if you stick with this, you know, you you can actually do well for yourself in this career, but it takes a lot of hard work and it takes the ability to, you know, shift and and adjust your thinking on what you think a career in CRM is and and constantly reevaluate that because you if you if you have this avatar of a CRM archaeologist in your head that is successful and it doesn't work out for you, you're just going to quit. You need to be able to modify that and say look at this opportunity that's come along. It's going in a completely different direction. I didn't even think was possible, but I think I'm right for it. And I think I could, you know, Be keep trainable. my toe in this and do it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And it's not just about you coming up with ideas and being a know-it-all. Be trainable. <laughs> right. Understand your audience. Look, yeah. when you are in the field, like there are times when it's time to step up and say, you know what? I have a good idea. And then there's times you got the best idea there. There's times to step back and just listen and yeah. absorb. So like people skills are huge. I would like mm -hmm. to talk about that in the next segment. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. I think we'll um, flip over to segment three with that and we'll be back in a moment. Thanks, guys. Hello and welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 256, and we have been talking about how to make the ultimate CRM Archaeology class. And with that, I think Doug had some comments based on what we were talking about before. Doug, what's up? Yeah, I was going to say I, I agree a lot with um, Heather and Chris. I was just going to jump in with some stats to back that up. Uh, but before, sort of conversely, it was just to say that not all of CRM, as Heather made excellent point, is crap. And actually, a lot of it's great fun and all sorts of things like that. But there are times when, yeah, you could get a bad employer or a bad situation. And, you know, sometimes you could have excellent employers, excellent people, and just personalities conflict and stuff like that. I think if you could let them know that it's okay to move jobs. I was just thinking back to like one of the Facebook forums. I can't remember which Archaeotech ones it was. A couple of months ago, there was someone on there who basically didn't quite, it was their first job, didn't quite realize they were on call. A company had put them on call and they were like, well, it's been like three months. I think if you could explain to the students that like, you know, depending on where you work, someone has to actually take them through that, that it's like on call and you might like go out for like two weeks and then be off for four weeks. And that actually you need to be working with multiple employers. You apply to like yeah. a bunch of different jobs and they'll put you sort of on, on standby. And then when they have work, you have work and how to negotiate and basically negotiate that process. And that, you know, companies will realize that like, if they didn't offer you that job, like instantly when you applied, that you might be taken by someone else and that's okay. Yes. I think it's just something to I, go more into that detail that like, especially when they're starting out that like you need to apply to a ton of jobs. You don't just apply to one when you're field teching. Yeah. And you know, if you don't like a company, there are other companies out there or yeah. other projects and you can, you can leave. You, you're, Absolutely. It's, 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 I, yeah. 
I just think that's a great that's a great point. And so that's so weird, too, you know, because so many jobs are not like that where, wait, aren't I supposed to be just loyal to this one? Don't I wait? Yeah, it's like, no, no, right. no, 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 no. It's a business deal. You find something else, you go for it. You know, right. they'll until be back around time until you yeah. get the full time position. And then it even applies there because there's yep. going to be times where, you know, there's a season for everything. Right. And yeah. you, you start and you have a you get that full-time position and, and then mm-hmm. this isn't, it. you know, you realize maybe the company is just not the best fit for you, or I'll just be honest. Sometimes companies just either, they don't have the ability to pay you more or they don't see your worth because you are in front of them and you, they already have you they, like any relationship in, right. in life. And we got very philosophical there for a minute. Very philosophical. <laughs> every, <laughs> Uh, every now and then you need to remind people what your worth is. And yeah. sometimes that means leaving. I think so. Or um, bringing up the so, conversation yeah, of potentially leaving. Yeah. You know, Doug, this is a great point because I've experienced this. I've experienced where CRM firms would try and keep me on the line when they had nothing for me. And then I said, hey, I'm going to this other place that does have a job for me. And they would pull this sort of BS loyalty thing. Oh, well, I mean, you could go over there, you know, and you have to be able to see through that stuff. You know, they they give you this idea that they'll never hire you again or something. They totally will next time around whenever they need someone. So there is that little note of looking out for number one. It will feel weird, especially to somebody new in the field. But it's it is an instance where they're not being professional, and you have to take up the slack. With I that have said, one, I, yeah. one very small, quick comment: do mm-hmm. your homework, know your worth, and be reasonable in what you ask. There are right. people that come a lot. I mean, we have the, where they're applying to our jobs and then they just price themselves out of the market. I mean, they, (laughs) they ask for crazy amount of money. So just do your homework and really know what is out there and also know your region because prices are dependent on the region. Yep. So that actually, I'm going to piggyback off of Heather again, which was the, the second comment I sort of had, which was, so back to this. So, you know, you guys know I do like the, the sort of stats of archaeologists. And I, and I know the wages. There are – so one, we really need to get rid of this this idea that like you're going to be forever in poverty if you do archaeology. There are millionaire archaeologists. There, there definitely hey, are. Don't, don't out um, me like that, okay? Don't out me. <laughs> All right. Uh, but it, it's like it's like the rest of the world. There's there's definitely gonna be a lot more people at the bottom than yeah. at the top. And but that's the thing is like, and this this goes back to sort of advice for you, Andrew. If you could do like an entire class on like what people actually want out of a career, because like mm-hmm. a lot of people when they describe they want to be an archaeologist, they'll say like I want to be a field tech or I want to be a project manager, which is a job and not a career. And there's a distinction. And it's it'd be really clear to get across them. And and the point I was also going to make is like, yes, not all pay is great, but like in the UK, they're they're doing a bunch of stats right now, trying to like value how you value heritage. And I think it applies to a job and how you value heritage. So how do you how do you, how do you put like something like Stonehenge or a cathedral into value? Well, they do surveys of people, and they say, you know, how much would you pay for that experience? Or how much you, would you pay to live like in an old town or medieval? Yeah. And you can actually look at some real stats into that. And they get a value off of that. And they say, okay, well, you know, 
this this bit of heritage is worth this much to people, you know, X million or whatever. But the same is true for a job as well. So like, yes, starting out in field tech, you know, the pay is not great, but the pay is also usually better than your your um, many other jobs that are out there. But also it's sort of a, a trade-off of like, yeah, so okay, maybe you're only making like forty thousand or fifty thousand a year, where wherever you are. Uh, I'm assuming that's what the like the starting rate is for California, because you guys are crazy expensive. I, I, I think that's um, I think that's fair, give or take. But yeah, yeah. that's the that's ballparky. Yeah. I think that's okay. Yeah, yeah. But then you also people realize that like, okay, so on paper, yeah, you, you got fifty thousand, but you might be actually doing like a hundred or a hundred and fifty thousand dollar job in the sense of you get to go out into a field, you get to find fun stuff. Most of the time that it's not, I mean, unless, yes, sometimes it can get repetitive, but a lot of times the days are different. You know, you're doing something different. You're doing a different types of archeology span all the time. You're doing something physical. Like you're not stuck in an office um, if you're there. And so like, that is something people need to think about when they're thinking about a career is like, there are some people who will do 40 or 50 years and retire as a field tech and they will be super happy because they didn't make a lot of money but they did like they made a lot of money and it's sort of intangible they were not bored they would have you know probably gone postal and right. blown away an entire office if they had uh, been stuck well, inside and stuff like that know, or, or died young because of, yeah yeah so uh, I, I think so, but uh, that's one uh, thing uh, is like yeah. when you're doing a career you need to think of like all right do i do I need the cash and what sort of job will get me that? Or do I want to be outdoors and what sort of job can get me that? So you're thinking about a career and what you want at the high level of, you know, I want to be able to afford a mortgage. That's the sort of yes. career you want. Or I want a career where yes. I can stay outdoors. And then you need to be able to make those trade-offs about, you know, what, what you can and cannot have. And I think it'll make your students both more realistic and also more happy. Also, help them to evaluate it. Like, hey, uh, so Bill, yeah, I'm dying to hear what you have to say. What do you got, man? Yeah, I've already been. I've so I've been teaching uh, during. The, I have a summer course that's six weeks long. That is uh, professionalism and anthropology. Nice. And then I also teach uh, ethical issues and cultural resources class. And so they're they're two different you know approaches. But they have they do have the goal of trying to introduce people in a classroom setting to what happens in cultural resources. And the, well, maybe not the anthropology course. That's more for just everyone who wants to work in museums or anthropology, however they want to approach it. And that one is broken down because it's only a six week summer course. You know, it can't cover as much. But it does that one really does start off with that, you know, life evaluation, you know, spending some time right. filling out this worksheet of like, what do you want out of your life? Like in five years from now, where do you want to be? And there's these columns with these different things from to put in there, like in your life, like where you live, uh, friends and family, you know, what kind of landscape, where do you live? So people have to actually envision, do you want to live in the city? Do you want to live in the suburbs? Do you want to be in the country? What country do you want to live in? Where do you want to be? What's your relationship to your parents? You know, and and it goes all the way out for quite a while, 30 years, because, you know, folks are definitely going to be moving forward in their lives in 30 years. And one of the first things that we talk about is how this is just one of the many careers you're going to have, because if you finish college here at Cal, you're 20 something years old, you have 50 to 60 more years of being in the workplace. 
And in that amount of time, you could have, you know, three 20 year retirements from a government agency, from a company, from something else, or you could have 82 different mini careers that you did for about six months a piece, right? So there's a million mm-hmm. different things that folks need to think about and that archaeology is just one of the careers you're going to do and that the the being outside and finding sites and stuff that's just one part of when you're going to do this you know and and to really think about the long game right that maybe one day you do want to have a house but you don't want to have it in the next five years maybe some of you need a house like right now and you can't really do the field tech thing you got to figure it out in five years something that's going to get you a house because you have needs so those are those are the kind of things that folks start off with in that one. And then we go through different things like uh, abstracts for conferences and uh, writing resumes is a key one. We do use that Anthropology Graduates Guide as, as the major book in that course that really right. helps people put together a portfolio of stuff because, once again, it's a summer course, so it's kind of after a lot of the archaeology jobs have been posted, but it gives people tons of time to prepare and to try to reach out and connect with employers that are going to be hiring in the winter, you know, so there's still students that have some time left ahead of them. But with the CRM course, that's more of kind of like, a, you know, what what would a project manager do in cultural resources? And it's a graduate course. So it's assumed that the, the folks that are upper level undergrads in this are probably going to go on for graduate school. And right. if they're going to go, if they're that serious about archaeology, they're probably going to go into cultural resources. And the the PhD students they need to just learn how to do archaeology. I mean, there's not a lot of classes where you actually learn how to do archaeology at Cal. It's like, you know, at the PhD level, I don't really even understand what it is. Just sitting around reading a bunch of junk and then hang out for three hours and talk. Like those are the classes that I absolutely hated when I was a PhD student. I wanted to hear what my professors knew and how they learned it. That's what I was paying to go do. And instead we were reading, you know, four books a week and then just talking about, just whatever the hell for three hours. Like I hated those courses. So I try never to make classes like that. And so we do have activities, you know, we have a mock RFP for a site that's nearby. And that oh, is, uh, just, is, to, just to cut in for a minute, what is an RFP? Oh, request for proposals. So I modeled it on some other requests for proposals, like sensible ones, not the 8,000 word, you know, yeah. government ones. But like, you know, sensible county level or city level RFPs for mm-hmm. uh, cultural resources work. And then they have to go through all the steps and they all work together. It's only about six students. They work together in a group. We all talk about, you know, the methods. We talk about a regulatory nexus that even is requiring this at the county or city level or the state level or however they want to approach it. And then, you know, we talk, we actually go to the site. There's a couple of different sites that have been nearby. We go there for a day, do a site visit. And then given what folks see out there, uh, you know, what, what are they, what are folks feeling or an approach? And then we, and then we start talking about the budget, you know, it's the sites buried underneath 10 feet of stuff. Well, are we going to use probes or this or that? Like, what do you really think? Are we going to use a backhoe? Are we going to do shoring? Like, and then they have to go online and figure out how much all that costs And then they also have to figure out, you know, the budget. It's taken me years to build this thing, but it's an Excel file that has the formulas in it for uh, some major pieces of overhead, like payroll taxes, insurance, L&I, material depreciation and all that stuff. So when they put in the hours, it shows on the other side how much that really billable hour rate is going to be. And so they uh, I'm like, yeah, man, nobody's going to really be a PI for twenty two dollars an hour. 
you're going to have to bump that up. Well, if we bump that up, that's going to mean that past overhead, they're making $260 an hour. I'm like, yeah. So you got to figure out how many hours do you really need a PI working on this thing? Or Mm -hmm. how many hours do you want to outsource? You know, what of this do you want to outsource? Do you want the photography, the 3D modeling outsourced? Well, how much do those people charge? Let's go figure it out. And so most of the course is really figuring out how many hours it's going to take for a certain task and how much money that's going to cost so that they can come together with something that's like an actual proposal with a real billable rate on it. And uh, Sonia Hootmacher, who was a co-host, she calls in and talks a lot about the business side of, you know, hiring people and, you know, what what that costs and, you know, uh, how, how they do their, you know, taxes and walks us through billable rate formulas and stuff and how she would predict for a survey area and stuff like that. And it's really cool, you know? So uh, that's what the CRM course is. And the idea is after that, you you will know what Heather's talking about. You'll know how come you get charged X amount of dollars, or yeah. you'll know why they rent trucks instead of owning trucks, you know, and all, I mean, parking, right? Like if you're a CRM company and I always give them an address in downtown Berkeley, like where are you going to park five trucks? Where are you going to yeah. keep them? You know, in downtown Berkeley, how many thousands of dollars does it take to park this truck at that lot? Is that really an expense across 12 months that you want to that you want to put in your proposals? Or do you just want to try to bill them for a rental? I mean, those are all the basic things that we talk about. And folks really think about them. You know, what are the benefits of having trucks? Well, you have them all the time. Yep. The the problem is you got to park them somewhere in the city of Berkeley and not have them get broken into or stolen or, you know, you also then have to take care of them forever. And a lot of times they realize that renting a truck is actually a better way to go than, uh-huh. you know, but I mean, those are the kind of basic things. Like I give them the formula for how much the laptops and stuff would be in the depreciation, but we sit around and we look up, you know, how much is a MacBook versus this other kind of whatever ThinkPad, And then, okay, you need six of them and they're going to need these softwares. Now let's break it down and let's break this across the year and then do depreciation of it. Yeah. Wow. That's great. See that stuff. You know, I love it. I yeah. love that. I love it. I think another aspect to, I mean, what you're doing there is you're creating that overhead computation, which if you have a larger company, your CFO is doing that. But I think that this really does give you a, a good, because not everybody's going to go to a larger company. Somebody may want to form their own company. Although I would highly suggest not doing that until you've worked for a larger company yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. in order to be successful. But, you know, I think uh, that's awesome. I well, love the fact that you have this formula because these are, you know, we have we have a budget sheet for our company and our CFO is the one every year has to go through. There's actual laws that require them to do that, but uh, they go through, we audit, we kind of figure out where we are from the last year. We predict where we're going to be for this next year. We look at the overhead and compute a percentage to begin with. So so we even know mm-hmm. what we're making, what we're aiming at. So I think I love this aspect, what, what Bill is mentioning. But I also think mentioning maybe just a side or an additional is the fact that, you know, there are going to be some companies that have that and understanding as somebody who works for a larger company that you have to take that into consideration. Yeah. And the other thing too, that's huge when the PhD students take it is that they realize they should be paying themselves. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, not every grant is going to allow you to pay yourself, but this is the mechanism for you getting money from the world and putting it in your pocket. Right. Exactly. 
Uh, so and Doug, Doug, made, made, Doug made a really good point about yeah. you have to know how many hours it takes. That yep. is one of the biggest things that people make a mistake on in the proposal is they are very optimistic. And oh, so true. I just, <laughs> but, I just have to rant. Like, like yeah. I've experienced that so many times. It's like yeah. that will never, that survey will never happen in four hours. Never, ever, not ever, yeah. you know? Oh yeah. God drives me Terrain, nuts. making sure you understand the terrain. Yeah. I mean, four acres on one site is completely different than four acres on another site. Yeah. Yeah. Then yeah, at 25%, like if, if you could pass on like one rule to those, uh, your students is like add an extra 20, 25% to whatever you do. Like yeah. time wise, like no matter how good you are at estimating yeah. time, just add yeah. an extra 20% mm-hmm. or, Sorry, you sure. know, for, for everything. Like, like no matter how good you do it, you need that extra, like 20%. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I, would I mean, I learned one- Early on that my supervisors, my first company, whatever I estimated, they were going to try to cut it in half and force us to do it. So I just started padding it with, you know, 25, 30% more than I actually really thought. And then if they cut it in half, I was way more likely to actually get it done. Yeah. And with budgets, I think it's important to look at it from both directions. You're starting from zero and saying, okay, what do I think this is going to cost? But you also have to look at it backwards because you have to know what the going rate is generally, so you don't want to price yourself out of the market. So you go and you start off maybe from zero up, but you always have to look at a proposal from the from the total down because you have to be able to shrink it to make sure that you're competitive. And how do you do that? You do that through being creative on who does what and what those billing rates are for those people. Just mm-hmm. like I think also- Doug or Andrew said that, you know, PIs, very little time should be uh, attributed to to their role in it. Mm-hmm. I'd also add like, man, Andrew, if you could keep in part again, sorry, I've, I've said this like 10 times, like okay. the most important thing, but walking away, like Ooh, way too many archeologists, yeah. way too many archeologists. Uh, actually, there's a couple of points on this, but like for budgets, like projects, way mm-hmm. too many archeologists look at it, as Heather said, and it is a going rate. Like you can't, there's what you want to be able to do it for. And there's what other people will do it for. And you have to be somewhat close. And way too many times, archaeologists look at it and are like, maybe we'll just cut out like a lunch break here or there and like try to make it work. Mm. And honestly, like <laughs> walking away, like not enough archaeologists just walk away from yeah. projects that are not affordable and not doable. Your first step should be go or no go. Yeah. You have to put yeah. time to looking at, is this a go or a no-go? Right. And exactly what you're saying, Doug. There's a point where you have to cut, what do you call it? Cut bait. Cut and run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, like there's uh, apps. Oh, I've you know, seen, I've experienced that. I'm sure we all have. It's like, you know, you're in the room and the obvious answer is, hey guys, let's stop. You know, that's, uh, like oh, Andrew, if you could give them, genius. if you can give them like three or four calls for proposals, because like, we all know this. Like you, you get calls in, you look at it, and there, and then you do a couple of quick back of the napkin calculations, and you're yeah. like, "So they want us to survey an acre at a cost of two dollars per acre," and you instantly know, <laughs> like, okay, that's a, a huge exaggeration there, but right. you get no, the point. Yeah. Like, you could pretty much quite quickly figure out what calls are just not viable, even though I know I've seen it in lots of 
companies, they'll be like, oh yeah, still, still toss it in there. And you're like, no, you're, my time is being charged to write up these proposals. You shouldn't be just scattergunning, throwing stuff in there, hoping it gets put in because one, that could cost you money if you, you actually get it. And two, it's costing you money to put in just bad proposals that you're just sort of winging it. Right. Like if you, yeah, like give them, I don't know, Andrew, if you can give them like three or four and be like, which ones would you concentrate on? You can only pick two. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ooh, that's, and I, people I, would I, figure it out. I totally agree that, that idea that you can't do it all that, you, you know, that, that economical sort of focus of funds and manpower in certain areas versus others. Ah, uh, these are gems, my friends, gems. And I think with that, we're we're way beyond time. We had a ton of stuff to say. It really helped me out. Now I just have my class, right? I had to do no work. You, you guys just did all the work for me. So I'll just slap my name on that, you know, at the end with that. That was excellent. So, uh, yeah. Andrew, if you're going to end it, you should do your also your like last class on not just walking away from bad proposals, but also like, uh, this is somewhat negative terms, but like how to leave archaeology as well. <laughs> yeah, the very last Not, class. And by the way, yeah, but like, you should leave. <laughs> well, no, like some people, I get the majority mean. of people who, the majority of people who do archaeology are not going to do it yes. from, you know, uh, from beginning to grave, like, you yeah. know, from, from, from college to grave. And like, I think there's a lot of shame that some people have for leaving. Like they feel like they're a failure if they leave archaeology and that like they couldn't hack it and stuff like that, or they couldn't, yeah. they couldn't hack it, it in CRM or they couldn't hack it in academia or, you know, even the subsectors of archaeology. And you should have a talk about like, yeah, sometimes the cards are not going to be there for you. Like, you know, maybe there's no jobs in your area and it's a right. drought of, of work it's, or like a literal drought and there's <laughs> no work, you know, there's, there's, think- there's I think if you could end on, it's okay to walk away um, and apply these skills elsewhere. But, you know, I think it's also okay. It's like what Bill said earlier, that, that what do you want out of your career in the first place? You know, like if you're, if you have some idea about that, then later on you have the foundation for if you quote unquote leave, or if you do it half the time or every so often, then you don't feel as bad because you have a more of an idea of what you want in the first place. But with that, we're going to have to roll out. That was a that was a great great fun everyone and I guess we'll see we'll see you guys next time and thanks for tuning in. Goodbye. Now waiting for the <laughs> the rollout. <laughs> That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show or in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.arcpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. See you guys next time. Hi, everyone. I think that should be fine. Have I forgotten anything? Nope. Kind of an awkward outro. You got it. You did it. All right. I'm gonna stop. I really, hope, this I really hope they keep on this outro. Just, nice. just this last nice. little bit of uh, us talking. Do, do be I amazing to end the episode. No idea. Yeah. <laughs>
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.